Welcome everyone to our April 2021 episode of the Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. By uh, lucky coincidence, this is our one-year anniversary of this show as well. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, Executive Director of our nonprofit Conroy Center and co-editor of the award-winning anthology, Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy. And I'm joined here on this Earth Day Eve by my guest, Susan Cerulean, author of I Have Been Assigned, The Single Bird, a Daughter's Memoir, which I had the honor of reviewing for the Southern Review of Books some months ago. Susan is a writer, naturalist, and an earth advocate based in Tallahassee, Florida. Her nature memoir, Tracking Desire, A Journey After Swallowtailed Kites, was named an editor's choice by Audubon Magazine. And her many other books include Unspoiled, Writers Speak for the Florida Coast, co-edited with Janice Ray and A. James Walpart, and Between Two Rivers, Stories from the Red Hills to the Gulf, co-edited with, again, Janice Ray and Laura Newton. Susan is a founding member and former director of the Red Hills Writers Project, and she was named Environmental Educator of the Year by the Governor's Council for a Sustainable Florida. I have been assigned the single bird is published by our friends at the University of Georgia Press in the Wormflow Foundation Nature Book Series, and it was recently named Gold Medal Winner for Best Memoir in the Sartan Book Awards of the Women's Story Circle Network. It's a great honor to have you here on the show. Susan, congratulations on your new award, and welcome to our podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much. This happens to be the last in my book um, my book series of talks since this book was released. And I'm just I'm just thrilled that it's with you and the Pat Conroy Literary Center. I was working on the Sea Islands of South Carolina as a uh, young biologist in the 70s at the same time as Pat Conroy was writing his book, The Water is Wide. And I certainly never met him, but when I read that book, after, shortly after it was published, I felt like he was speaking to me and to all of us who loved that part of the country as he did in all of his, his works after that. And I feel, so I feel really connected to you all, Jonathan, and I'm really happy that you invited me to join you on the show. I wanted to say something um, to our audience tonight. I know that wild birds are probably beloved by so many people, and being close to their lives is one of the most awesome gifts that my life has given to me. I've approached them in lots of ways, counting them, writing about them. I hear one singing outside my window right now. Um, I've worried about their declines. I've developed programs to try to protect them. But what gives me the most pleasure is just being among them, and observing them and thinking about what they contribute to our planet. This book, um, I have been assigned a single bird, is different from the others I have written because in it I paired the stories of the gifts of the birds in my life and what threats they face with caregiving my beloved father who died of Alzheimer's disease in 2012. And that probably sounds like a very strange story braid, but I, I think that by, fo- by following those meanders, we can learn how much, how completely intertwined with other life forms and their fates um, we are, and we may not realize. So a little backstory, um, when I'd been, I was writing working here in North Florida between the coast uh, west of Apalachicola and my home in Tallahassee, and we were raising our family and um, just encountered that kind of situation that so many people do where you have a, a parent that's in need but living far away. And he was in living in New Jersey with his his wife, my stepmother, Mary Jane, and that illness progressed finally to the point where he needed more care than he could receive at home. I know that's a story. 
so many people can identify with. And the tipping point for us came when his wife had a stroke and died unexpectedly. So my husband and I decided that we would be the ones to bring him here to North Florida and somehow, um, you know, at the time I was thinking about save him or at least stabilize his condition. So with that introduction, I'd like to read you a brief excerpt from I Have Been Assigned a Single Bird. One afternoon during the second September of my father's stay in the nursing home, I stood near his bed and pressed my forehead against the window. Through the glass, I could hear the muffled calls of cardinals and red-eyed vireos. But I didn't open the windows because the late summer air was steaming like a thick, hot pudding. When we first moved Dad into that room, the emerald light filtering through the glass had reminded me of swimming underwater in a warm river. It wasn't really so bad, like you might fear kudzu-mediated sunlight could be. But now I noticed that many of the tall pines around the nursing home were dying under the weight of the vines forming their living canopies. I saw that those smothering lianas were exactly like the tangles and plaques in my father's brain, how both kudzu and Alzheimer's replace a vibrant, living place, a brain once full of inborn competence and memories of long-gone houses and long-grown children, dissolve those things in super slow motion, replacing them with loss. Dad's drugs, the Nemenda and the Aricept, were like winter frost in the forest. For a time, they would keep the plaques in his brain at bay, but link by link, the invasive vines weighted that scaffold of mature trees with blankets of biomass. I could still make out the biggest magnolia setting its red fall fruit, but I didn't know if it would survive until freezing December nights flashed the tough kudzu back to its knees. The earth is the brain and the body into which we were born. In some nearly parallel way, we face not only a crisis in numbers of people diagnosed with dementia. As a culture, we are stricken with this disease and its attending violence. For why else would we knowingly destroy the planet that sustains our very lives? Our Western economic and political systems, all the ways we personally consume, these are the illnesses that are killing our planet. When you have the physical disease, you experience it alone. But our cultural dementia, we are in this together. So what is our part? What can each one of us do to alter the trajectory we ride? How can we bring healing to this world? I offer you the story of my own explorations in service to that question. How can we bring healing? to this world. I have tried to reconcile my roles as one daughter caring for one father, as one woman attuned at times to only a single wild bird while it seems the planet is burning. How I long to change the world for the better. Offering care to those we love is very similar to standing up for our earth, I have found. In all cases, we are required to be fierce and full-bodied advocates in an endless series of small actions, each as important as the next. This story braids the human and the animal as it must, for we can never be separate. Thank you, Susan. That is a beautiful reading of a, of a beautiful section from the prologue. And it, it sets up what uh, so astonished me and, and what lingers with me still about the book that you so beautifully link the, the deeply personal and the intimate with the global, with, with those things that concern all of us as well. It's, uh, and it, it is poetic. It is wonderfully poetic from beginning to end. I want to, uh, do something I don't typically do, and it almost seems uncouth to do it, but I want to read just a very short passage from my own review, effectively quoting myself. 
uh, to give our listeners and, and myself a reminder of, of the way that, that I sort of entered the book and, and what most resonated with me. And then uh, I'd love to sort of unpack that and, and talk to you about it a little bit. So this is just Great. Uh, a, sen- a sentence or two from, from, from my own review, uh, which again appeared in Southern Review of Books, I believe in January of this year. In her tender and wise memoir chronicling both her end-of-life care of her octogenarian father and her stewardship of seabirds on an isolated Florida island, Susan Cerulean brings to the fore the responsibilities and rewards of bearing witness to and advocating for delicate lives in transition. I have been assigned the single bird is both elegy and call to action, a beautiful remembrance of a life now gone from this earth, and an impassioned plea to serve as caregivers to that same earth and its myriad creatures. What, uh, what I want to begin with in our conversation is some understanding of at what point you as a writer started to realize that, that these two experiences you were having in the period chronicled in the book were intertwined, or as you say, a braided narrative that could be brought together in, 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 this, in this single intertwined story. When did the pieces sort of start to, to fall into place for that way of telling the story? Uh, that is such a really good question. Um, what, what I was doing was kind of living two lives with, besides, you know, being a family, raising my sons with my husband and, um, you know, having a home and so forth, my two jobs were uh, working for the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, mostly doing environmental education and outreach and um, helping people understand what the needs of wild birds were, and then at the same time taking care of my dad. And in both, in both cases, I was keeping a and I was also, and, I, and I'm a writer too, so you know, anything, anything is grist for the mill, right, for a writer. So I was keeping, what I realized is that I was kind of keeping two notebooks. One was for my, my professional work, my observations about uh, wild birds and what I was doing and seeing and the data I was collecting. And the other was the minutia of um, being the primary person responsible for someone that's ill and so in that notebook, there would be uh, notes about um, my caregivers and what, I, you know, their salaries and what was working and what wasn't. There would be little lists of things like um, supplies that we needed for his room and questions for the doctors and funny things that he said, uh, conversations that we had that I could pass on along to my siblings. And then, and then, so I had these two really different kinds of um, narratives that I really didn't think of as uh, one, one that could ever be one book because I, I never had tried to really write anything about people so much before because I was a nature writer. But as I, as I looked at my journal and then I would look at my dad's writing and I would think, wait a minute, these are what we're seeing here are really the same story. And I think it was the kudzu that led me there, Jonathan. I really think it was. I, I, it, was it can be boring sometimes to sit by a very slow-moving person's bedside. Either it's boring or there's some kind of crisis that you have to manage. And uh, in the boring, in the slow-moving times when Dad would be napping or, you know, not much happening... Um, the only thing I had to entertain myself was looking out that window. And when I saw over time how every Southerner knows about kudzu and how it, it can take over space, when I saw this, you know, when I, all of a sudden it clicked into place, oh, these are the same processes. Then I thought, well, I should, I should see what I can make happen here because I don't have another subject right now. So that's, that's how it happened. You know, and it takes time at first. I wasn't sure if it was going to work. <laughs> you know how that goes. <laughs> I do indeed, but but it works beautifully uh, as well. And it's uh, your writing about your father is so deeply moving, and it's confessional. And I can only imagine it was difficult. Your father, a World War II veteran, who on the one hand you credit 
with introducing you to the writings of Rachel Carson and mimicking bird calls and bird behavior, sort of for the amusement of you and your siblings. But on the other hand, he's also an engineer for a company which, which, as you say in the book, employed practices that inflicted environmental damage. So there's there's this you know complexity to this, to put it mildly. Yeah. And I'm wondering, as someone who was sort of unaccustomed to writing about people in this way, let alone your own family, how how did you approach the challenges of what you were or weren't going to put on the page in, in that regard? Well, what helped me with that was that we had a really we had a really good relationship and our our love, his love for all of us was there really wasn't anything that we could do that would um divide us permanently. I think in, in, as a, any good parent uh, might might be the same way, and um, he knew he knew from my previous books that when I realized when I came to understand I was trying to understand and starting with tracking desire, which was about swallowtail kites. I was trying to understand um, my complicity as a um, sort of a middle-class, white, um, reasonably well-off person in that kind of a family. What was my complicity and those of my people in the destruction that we see in this world? And so I, I just, you know, dug around, thought about what did I know about what my father did, what my mother did, and I never really understood that the company he worked for was an international mining company that mine, mined nickel in um, Canada in open pit mining mines, and um, he he was not a, a secret keeper, but he he was just a, you know I see him as as a, a 50s kind of a guy trying to make a living and support four children, and he was an engineer, and you know you know a, a parallel might be. Um, when I try, when I when I was first coming out of graduate school, I thought, well, an environmental consultant—that sounds like a good kind of job. You know, you can tell people that are going to do some kind of land use change what's there and how they can do a better job and not not destroy things. Similarly, I think he felt like um, by being in the system. He could, uh, you know, do good for the world. He only ever wanted to do good. He was a pretty transparent guy in that way. So we had to have some um, difficult conversations about what we believed, but he never, ever um, would have tried to or, or and did not try to censor what I wrote. So that was, wasn't that lucky. It was because indeed. If, <laughs> because if he had, I would have had to, try to figure out how to honor his, you know, his desire for, for privacy. But he, he was very encouraging uh, of what I was, you know, where I was going with the, with the work. You, you certainly honor your relationship with your father and by extension, your father with, with the honesty, with the candor that, uh, that you've put into this memoir. Uh, you mentioned the, the Prince of Tides earlier, and I'm reminded of a, a passage from that in which Tom Wingo, our protagonist, uh, is staying in his uh, his twin sister uh, Savannah Wingo's New York apartment, which is filled with books, like many more books than a you know a, a struggling poet in New York should be able to have, much less have in her apartment. <laughs> and and Tom discovers that uh, Savannah has underlined passages in many of the books, which gives him some insight into into what she's thinking and feeling. And he is against this. This is not something that, that uh, Tom would have endorsed. And I don't think it's something Pat did much of either, just from having spent time in his library, but um, against the wishes of Pat and Tom Wingo, I have, I will confess to you that I have underlined many, many passages and I have been assigned a single bird. Oh, uh, there's that's so, nice. so much beautiful writing. And, and I want to quote a short passage to you, which relates to what we were just talking to talking about rather and it's this um, how does the tending of one dying old man his protracted dying stack up against the urgencies of the world perhaps I'd learn something by trying to fix or mend what is close at hand 
those to whom I was most closely related and deeply loved, maybe I thought through this impossible task, I would learn the language of tending to the world. Uh, first, let me say again, that is an absolutely beautiful passage. It relates yeah. back to uh, this, this braided narrative and, and why it works ultimately, the, the possibility that there is something to be learned from this very intimate experience, which has an unfortunate but nonetheless certain endpoint and, and the global need to try and save the world we all share. Uh, so I'm wondering, do you, looking back on all of this now, do you feel as though you did indeed learn the language of tending to the world? And can you speak to what, what that language is, what, what perhaps the biggest lessons learned from this experience were for you personally? Well, I'm still, I'm still working with that question in the writing and, and thinking that I'm doing now, but I would have to say that what I learned was the same it was like the same the same careful observation, the same um, meditative kind of being with um, the same listening to something that to some being that either no longer in the case of sometimes my dad and the birds don't speak the same language anymore that I do. And um, do you know what I mean? Um, he, there are times when a person who is, who is very ill, or, and particularly with dementia, can no longer express through language what it is they need. And because we don't understand the language of birds, uh, they're not... It's, there aren't very many people who can claim that the birds are telling them what they need. But by observation, by, by like sort of a patient being with, taking the time to, to sit with, um, you can uh, learn what, whatever the wounded creature is that you're with needs, I think. I think, I think that's what I learned is that it requires being willing to be still and go at the pace of the thing that you love, that you're, you're trying to, that you think you're trying to help. I think that, you know, one of the things I learned was I, I thought in the beginning um, that I would be able to do perhaps a, a better job than my stepmother was up there in New Jersey because I was younger and, um, in good health myself, and she was not. And I thought, I can, I can take care of all these things for him, and, and he's going to get better. But see, that was kind of a dementia of my own, <laughs> or a delusion, let's say, um, because that, this illness we don't have a cure for at this point. So where it gets difficult, I think, is um, that we don't, we don't know if we can reverse course with the, the forces that we have unleashed as a species on this planet. So I knew that, that my dad was going to die at some point. And I just had to figure out how to make his life as meaningful and comfortable as I could. But I'm not willing to do that with the birds. Not that I've figured out how to save them either. I've tried a lot of different courses in my various um, careers. And now I believe that for me, being sort of an ambassador between both worlds is, might be the best use of my, um, my willingness to witness, as you said, is that if I can um, watch what's going on right out here where I am and see what, you know, what's threatening them, what, you know, where they're nesting, uh, noticing which species are coming and going. Um, if I can communicate that to other people, then first we might we might all gain an appreciation for these incredible beings. And secondly, maybe we could figure out together how to reverse our course. Um, so I just thought if I if I could pair those stories and try to listen to the languages, as you say, uh, in both cases, that maybe 
I could make a difference. And I'm sure that the jury's still out. I'm, I have not made the impact of Rachel Carson, for example. You know, I have not changed any um, laws about pesticides or sea level rise or anything. But I think I, I think this is my part. Mm-hmm. Very well said. I think I think people at this point have achieved uh, the, uh, the sort of uh, action hero status that, that Rachel Carson has, and very few of us kind of get that opportunity, but we all have our, our roles to play. We all have our opportunities. I want to uh, circle back around to, to a couple things that have come up uh, thus far in our, in our conversation here. Um, I, I mentioned the word tending to the world, quoting to you as a sort of you know, extended version of caregiving. And this is a word that's come up quite a bit lately in conversations as people sort of react to the time that we're in and say, well, what can I do? What can any one person or what can any small group of people do? And uh, my friend Carla Dameron, a wonderful writer and and social worker here in South Carolina, uh, posted something a few months ago, and I I would credit the author if I could remember it, but it was an article about sort of uh, the way the American spirit is set up for heroism versus caregiving. In, in other words, <laughs> that's, we, good. We, that's very you know, good. We will, uh, we will rush into the burning shed to save the puppy or we'll learn the Heimlich maneuver or CPR for the, there are those moments when, you know, decisive life-saving action is needed, or we'll black out our profile picture on social media to show support for black lives <laughs> right. matter. But, we're less willing, we're, we're less uh, at this point sort of willing to make ourselves available for the longer haul of caregiving, for investing our time in something that, that is, you know, potentially uncertain as well. Is that what you find to be, a, you know, an obstacle in, in your environmental work as well, that, that people may show up for the bake sale fundraiser, but they won't sort of commit themselves beyond that? What I do see is that, um, going back to the very part, first part of what you said, that there, there, it's. I have thought too about how there are. It doesn't seem like there are that many people who actually get to save things. Um, mm. There are mm. there are people who do endangered species recovery, and especially one of the best investments is um, in protection of landscapes from development or doctors and nurses who actually heal a broken leg or perform heart surgery. There are opportunities in some, in some walks of life to, to actually at least temporarily save things. But like you say, uh, I think tending is probably a better word, even though, one of the things we have to tend if we want things to be better for our grandchildren is is our climate. Um, I think that's an important thing for us to talk about here on the eve of Earth Day because uh, there's there's very little we can do as an individual unless we're in the nature conservancy business or you know the medical profession, and depending on what we're trying to you know what our goal is. Um, there's very little we can do unless we change our whole culture. And we're seeing now um, in the intersection of the climate crisis with so many different crises. And I think the same root causes are, are, exist for all of these, for economic injustice, for um, the, the Black Lives Matters issues, for... Uh, and for the environmental crisis, it's because we, we especially in the Western world, have a more eye focus to our um, to how we view things. How does this affect me and my family, rather than the we that um, the native people here would have brought, did bring to um, their their tenure on the land. And, that, you know, that's why our new Secretary of the Interior, Deb Howland, is so exciting because she brings that voice of we, and the we includes every being, every landscape, not just, uh, not just me and you, but, but the whole connection. 
And I think that tending is related to that repositioning ourselves in we. Um, so not just that bird over there, but, you know, I was, I was looking at some this afternoon, thinking about this, this talk with you and thinking if I could be in, in that group of birds that I'm looking at, if I could just be winding in there like one of them, then I would really understand what their situations were. And the same for someone in a nursing home, the same for someone um, who is, you know, one of those people who was witness to George Floyd's death. Um, I think that all of these, that if we can get so that we're not higher than, there's not that we're not in a hierarchy, that's part of the work of tending and of um, doing the work that we're talking about, Jonathan, that we know needs to be done for this planet and its beings. Does that make sense? It does. Oh, absolutely. It, it, you know, listening to you just now uh, reminds me of several conversations I've had lately with other writers. Um, and, and I'm sure many, many people outside of our writing circle have had these conversations too, to sort of look at our collective response to the pandemic in this past year and look at, look at so many examples that show us many people don't think of the we at all. They only think of the I or the, or the small circle and, and react accordingly to that. But every so often we see glimpses of people willing to do something for the collective good, even, even if yeah. it has no direct mm-hmm. positive impact on them, because they, they understand there's more than, than just them. There's more than just you know, those within an arm's reach of them as well. And, and I talked about this uh, in a slightly you know, different framework with Ron Rash recently asking him, you know, sort of in, in a broad sense, what does he see as his responsibility as a nature writer in his approach to incorporating the natural world into all of his writing? And, and Ron said that his goal was to be as descriptive and as immersive as possible when describing the natural world with, with no assumption whatsoever that his readers already value it, but, but wanting to, to show them that value on the page, wanting them to, uh, you know, to see it as something that has value that is in their lives that they too can engage with in whatever way they can uh, so that they will want to protect and preserve as well. And there's a passage, again, an underlined passage uh, from you in your book uh, that kind of speaks to this, too. So let me read that briefly, and then I'll ask you kind of to respond to that. And it's a relatively short one here. This is, um, this is what you had to say. And again, here's the word we right in it. We love and care for what we have come to know through immersion, moment by moment by moment, over long, intimate years. Understanding the place we live in or visit in this way leads us to connect and tend and defend. So you're writing about this need to, to, for people, for all of us, for the we, to be willing to invest ourselves in, in places and attending to those places and the lives connected to those places over a long period of time. So how, how do we get to that? How do you think we get people to to see the larger picture you know when you I could this is a tiny bit of a diversion but as you were reading that I was thinking about the person that right now I think might have the broadest reach uh, and I don't think she would even call herself a nature writer but she does it so amazingly and she's in the New York Times every I think every other week or maybe every week Margaret Rankle do you know her oh yes I do, yes. She writes about the the smallest things that are happening in her yard, um, whether it's a, you know some kind of invasive plant that she's trying to get rid of or something that's happening at her bird feeder or um, just takes on things that you might think, well, I... I know about that. I already, you know, I've got that. But then she'll take it up another level and, you know, watch the, I'm not, I'm not doing her justice, but I think that she really understands and communicates in the way that we all want to 
how the very, very micro, uh, the micro of our, the macro of our lives, you know, how the, the large picture and the small picture uh, sort of telescope in and out of one. And um, sometimes people just need to be educated about, um, you know, the, how water water use affects the springs of Florida. That's that's something I'm writing about right now. How our our pumping and our development of um, groundwater is making our springs dry up, that sort of thing. But she does it in a way that's so personal. That's why I thought this kind of a format might work um, because I know that 6 million people have dementia right now. If, if, if that's true, then there have to be at least 2 to 10 people in their families who are very concerned and frustrated and 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 grieve, grieving over this illness. And so I just thought, well, if we could make this connection between what we're seeing when we're when we're taking care of someone who's ill and it would certainly apply to the virus as well. Um then maybe we can, you know, swivel the the lens out to the larger view and we could look at, oh yeah, yeah, the way the way we bulldoze stuff to build a new quickie mart or a storage shed or whatever that is whatever is happening on your corner is the same it's the same process. It's destroying some beautiful living system. And yeah, so that was my hope. It's a hope very much achieved on the page, at least from the perspective of this reader, and I imagine not just this reader. Um We've mentioned a couple of writers along the way already, so this might be a good time to to switch to this question. You've uh, you've obviously come uh, in, into contact with and uh, seemingly admiration of many nature writers, including our friend here at Conroy Center, Janice Ray, and I believe Connie May Fowler as well. So I'm I'm wondering. Now, who who else is in in your circle, whether you know them personally or just on the page, that that's uh, influencing you, and that you'd be willing to recommend to our readers who may be interested in in diving into the world of of knowing more about contemporary nature writing as well? Definitely those two. I uh, Denise Ray is a close friend, and we talk about writing all the time. And I I don't know a, a better Southern voice. Uh, for that, I mean, she's been called by the New York Times the Rachel Carson of the Southern Longleaf Forest, and, and she is. Um, Connie Mae Fowler is such a powerhouse, and she uses personal stories so well. But the one who taught me, and the one who um, I cannot put down, is Terry Tempest Williams. Mm-hmm. I know you you know Terry Tempest yeah. Williams. Uh, I I I went to a workshop with her in the early 90s and she just changed my my whole um my whole life in terms of taking on the questions in this case of of women in the home um and I just every time she puts out a new book I'm just beside myself. We have um quite a few regional nature writers in Florida. Florida is a hard place to to find nature writers, and I think it's because we don't have a good story of our place. And so the ones who can who can do that are the ones that tend to get the larger readerships. And this is a funny choice, Jonathan, but I think Carl Hyacin is one of the mm-hmm. most powerful voices for nature in Florida that I know. And he just retired from the Miami Herald where he wrote opinion pieces for decades and tried to um, carry forward the work of of the um, the last generation of nature writers here, which were Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, women like that. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. I, I, I love... Barry Lopez's work, and since he has died, I I am picking up his the books of his that I haven't read. 
There's a woman that I really love. Her name is Eva Salidis, S-A-U-L-I-T-I-S. And she she died um, maybe five or seven years ago. But she, talk about a woman who immersed herself in the world of, of a creature that really uh, was, was having, was struggling um, on the edge of extinction as she herself was dying from breast cancer. She is, she was someone I really adored. I also really like um, Kathleen Dean Moore, who writes from Oregon. She, she is so worth reading. Um, there, are, there are wonderful nature poets that I go back to, like Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry's poems always move me. Barbara Kingsolver writes in many different genres, but she's a Southern nature writer that um, that I just adore. Who do you like? You mentioned Wendell Berry, and I've, uh, I've uh, recently sort of been reintroduced to Wendell Berry by having met him in person for the first time about a year ago at a Kentucky Book Festival, and I've, I've really been sort of reimmersing myself into him. Mary Oliver, I don't think we mentioned. Mary yet, Oliver, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. well worth adding to the list. Uh, here in South Carolina, two nature writers who both have sort of connections to Janice Ray as well. John Lane uh, from the uh-huh. City Press in Spartanburg, who writes in many genres, uh, but, but always very much rooted in the natural world. And then uh, a writer that John mentored for a while, uh, who has certainly come into his own, is a, a remarkable friend to us here at the Conroy Center, uh, Dr. Drew Lanham, J. Drew Lanham. Who is yes, I know him us. too. Pharaoh he- Envy just came out yesterday in the expanded edition. How do you know Drew? How did you encounter him? Well, there's been a group of Southern nature writers who have gathered, uh, organized by Janice over mm-hmm. the years, I think we and we we used to get together on Asaba Island, and two years ago we met at maybe a year and a half ago we met at Wormslow Plantation, mm-hmm. right there, not, not too far from Savannah. And, right, very close uh, to us here. In both both of those guys were there. That was the first time I'd ever met Drew, but I've known John also for a long time. Um, let's see, who else was? I'm trying to remember, but but anyway, that's that's. We try to stay loosely connected, one or two of us from um, every southern state. And uh, it's it's so interesting, the cultural differences that each of us have to address in our own places. Anne Fisher Worth is a poet out of Mississippi who's definitely worth reading. Um, someone that I I personally love and have enjoyed her writing over the years is Jan DeBlue, and she wrote from the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and she considers herself to be a um, climate evacuee because she mm. and her husband left finally left that place because because of what sea level's doing to the Outer Banks and moved to Maine just in order to have a to know that they're wherever they chose to live might be there, you know, for the, for the rest of their lives. And um, so she's, she, she's also in our group. Um, that's how, that's Jim Kilgo used to be when he was still alive. Uh, Franklin Burroughs, who mm-hmm. is rooted in um, South Carolina, is one of our people. And the group changes, you know, it changes configuration as people are interested or, you know, have other things going on in their lives. The Western nature writers are very connected in this way. And when Janice went to get her master's, her MFA at the University of Montana, um, she she brought back to the South connections with, with um, lots of incredible nature writers like Bill Kittredge, who was her mentor, um, and Rick Bass. And Linda Hogan is another. Oh, Linda Hogan is an amazing poet, and uh, she also writes novels and creative nonfiction. In fact, if somebody was wanting to begin uh, with somebody new, a new writer, that's who I would recommend. She's not a new writer, but if, if, if you hadn't already been reading um, 
her books. I, I think she's, she's incredible. She's a Native woman, and I think Native people have a whole lot to tell us right now. Indeed, well worth listening to as well. well it's quite a list of recommended re- writers that, uh, that we've collectively come up with, mostly you, a little mm-hmm. bit, me, but uh, no, it's also but... led us <laughs> to, to wander into poetry, and it is National Poetry Month. Uh, and there is a, a poem within your book, which begins uh, part two, uh, titled, uh, as the book is titled, I Have Been Assigned the Single Bird. And I wonder if you might be willing to, to read that for us and then tell us a little bit about where the poem originated. Sure, I sure will. The dream I had was this. Tied to dune, I walked beside the sea where crowds spread blankets and chairs, played with their dogs and their children, built sandcastles. Improbably, I saw ancient claimants of the shore dart among them, seeking space, a snowy plover and its toothpick-legged chick. No one saw. In the dream, I was instructed, don't take your eyes off that chick child and, and its parent. Care for them. Protect them. But how? How would I keep them safe? Far away on a deserted shore, Enormous flocks of snowy plovers thrived. I wanted my job to be steward of that sturdy congregation, more worthy, I thought, and more possible. But I have been assigned the single bird. That came from an actual dream that I had. Those images were in the dream. And I guess it represents the longing that that sometimes I feel, I, I sometimes wish that my commitment was not to witness what's being lost, what's being broken, what's being intruded upon, but to just be out in nature untrammeled, nature unaffected by humans. But we know in this time that that's, that doesn't, you know, you, you can go dive in a coral reef and see beautiful things. But if you haven't lived there your whole life, you don't know what's been lost. But you can be sure that anywhere on this planet, there's been such a shift in in numbers of species and distribution of species in general, overall biodiversity. So I have to, you know, that's that's what that poem was, that's what that dream was telling me. Your job is to sit here on the edge of this place on the planet and and uh, watch what's 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 still living and what's being lost and tell people about it in every way that you can imagine to to speak so when you get a message like that you have to obey right it's a calling right callings callings are calling? always of value yes indeed oh i had I'm so glad you shared that. I was wondering, you know, the story behind the poem and, and the story behind the title of the book and the poem as well. Uh, could you could you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that for, for the ti- as the title of both pieces? And uh, obviously it's a line from the poem, but where, where does it, where did it originally come from for you? Well, where it came from was the way, the place that most of my writing comes from, which is through free writing. So, okay. My practice every morning is to, um, before I do anything, is to, is to, I have my journal there, and I try to write straight from my dreams. So often they're not nearly as profound as, as that one was. You know, <laughs> you know how our dream life can really vary. Um, but, but I am faithful to that practice. And then I start, uh, you know, I, I, I write especially if I'm here at the coast, then I can lift up my eyes and see what's out there at sunrise and, you know, see the eagle calling to the sunrise, which they do, which I, you know, I would never know if I, if I wasn't here to also, you know, see and be calling to the sunrise myself as a, another being and to see how the, you know, the oyster catchers move their chicks along the beach and, um, the dolphins 
you know, when they're fishing and when they're mating and when they're just passing by. So when I'm here, I just I just write what I see. And then when I'm home, I do my editing and I do my, um, you know, I try to make the stories fit into one narrative, you know, as I, as I did with this book. It's unfortunate that we have to spend so much time editing and <laughs> rewriting, but that's the job of a writer, you know. <laughs> We'd like to just be watching the beautiful things at all times, but uh, the commitment is to is to the page and to figuring out how can I help other people see what I just saw and then just have their heart like break open with love for the net for the mm-hmm. world that's our place on earth. It, it is. It's very true. Everything that you've said is very true, and I think it it reminds me of uh, a word we've discussed earlier. A writer has to tend to the narrative at some point as well, and, yeah, and tend to the perceived needs of of the audience. If indeed you want to have an impact with an audience, it, it is a difficult, challenging assignment, and, and one obviously that you do well. We only have about five minutes left, and and I have you know probably an hour's worth of questions, so I'm going to pick a pick a few that I would love to get to in our time remaining. I was listening to uh, another interview you did a couple of days ago in preparation for this. And uh, you mentioned a commonplace book that you keep a commonplace book, which is different than a journal. And I'd love for you to sort of explain to our listeners what that is and and how that works for you. I will, because I'm really a big fan of, of commonplace books. And it apparently these were, not an uncommon way that people wrote, um, maybe even in the you know in the early 20th century. But I learned about the commonplace book from um, one of my women um, teachers, um, Dr. Sheila Ortiz Taylor at Florida State University. And so every time I have a new book idea, so I for for my tracking desire book, I had a, I had a commonplace book for the last book before this one. Coming to pass, I had two of them because it went, the process went on so long. And and you you make it beautiful. You you might take a quote from a Mary Oliver poem and then free write from it, or you might take an anecdote of something that you saw that just really moved you, and and put that in there. And you don't really know. It's like it's like making a quilt sort of. You would have uh, a sketch of the island across the way that I'm looking at or the bird tracks in the sand or a photograph or even something that you cut out of a magazine that you thought was beautiful or moved you in some way. And then you write from these images. It's not like sitting down at a computer and just um, pounding out your thousand words. It's, uh, it's, it's going from image to image uh, some that other people have created and some that you have um, found to be important in, to yourself. And it's a very visual kind of notebook. And I always use a different kind of notebook for my commonplace books so that I can use them for sketching, even though I'm just, you know, I'm not a, in any way trained as, a, as an artist. But but then I remember differently if I sketch something, you know, uh, that eagle in the tree in the most primitive way, then it comes back to my mind later in a different way than just words. So I, I highly recommend the commonplace book. It's a place where you can just let your creativity really go and nobody has to see it and it might never turn into a book, but it's really satisfying. I'm going to give it a go. Oh, do, uh, do, do. I can, yes. Uh, it, it sounds wonderful. And I, too, have heard it used uh, as sort of a, a late 19th century, early 20th century tool. And I, I think right. several have been reproduced as sort of facsimile editions by, by writers or historical figures who kept them sort of as a, a point of reference. It's something I'm very interested in, in trying and may recommend to a few other writer friends to sort of see how we do with it collectively. So thank you for sharing that with us. This may have to be our final question as, a, as our clock ticks away, unfortunately. But since we're on the eve of, of Earth Day and we've talked quite a bit about 
subtractions, which is a, a, a term and a concept you use quite a bit in the book, the sort of slow incremental loss to, of habitat loss and climate change, uh, but also in the context of your father's dementia, the sort of small incremental subtractions of all that. I wonder, as we approach Earth Day, if you can give us maybe one or two tangible ways we might be able to make additions to our natural world. What are one or two things that, that people really could introduce into their lives that would make some significant difference to the health and, and well-being of our planet? Well, um, can I say three things? I'll say them yes. quickly. What, one would be to join, find a really vibrant group of people in your community that, that is doing something related to um, the earth. And in, in my community, there's a revival of the Audubon Society. And so I'm going to put some extra time into that group because they're really getting people out there, people of all walks of life and um, every kind of, you know, person. They're trying to make nature available to. Uh, I think if you can take on one thing, this would be, this is really important. Find one thing that you love out there and learn everything you know be a journalist be a um be a curious person and maybe make a commonplace book or a little scrapbook with your child or your grandchild and 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 then it's like the like john muir i guess it was john muir who said that you know then everything's connected to everything else but i think making a practice of learning about something living out there like a cardinal or a swallowtail kite, or a peace lily, or whatever it is, not a peace lily, that's not a native, something native, and make it your relationship with that. I think, I think you know, that, that doesn't sound like doing a lot, but it, it really could be. It really could be. Oh, that's a wonderful thought. You sort of have to assign yourself a single bird, metaphorically or, or <laughs> there literally. You go. There right? you go. Yeah, there you oh, go. I love that's right. That. That's right. Oh, that's a good thought to end on. I'm not sure we can do much better than that. So I want to thank you so much for your time and your conversation here, Susan. I've really enjoyed this and I've gotten so much out of it, and I hope our listeners will as well. Thank you as well for a beautiful book. I have been assigned The Single Bird, uh, available at fine booksellers everywhere from our friends at the University of Georgia Press. Let me say uh, two quick notes about uh, where else folks can encounter our Conroy Center activities. You can learn quite a lot about what the center does at patconroyliterarycenter.org. We'll be back here on the Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast on May 19th, 7 p.m. Eastern, talking to Deshaun Charles Winslow, who is the author of an extraordinary debut novel called In West Mills, which is the newest winner of the Willie Morris Award for Southern Fiction. And this coming Monday night, I will be appearing with the uh, with the single bird I have been assigned, I suppose, my 16-year-old <laughs> My 16-year-old protege, Holland Perryman, and I will be interviewed on the Right Review Facebook page by Right Review founder and my fellow Doug Marlett Literacy Leadership Award winner, Annie McDonald. And uh, Holland and I are very much looking forward to that. Susan, any final thoughts before we run out of time here on the show? How, how can folks keep up with you? Do you have a website or a newsletter or a social media I have presence? A, I have a website and, a, and social media just, just by following uh, just typing in my name, Susan Cerulean. And my final word would be uh, a quote from Joanna Macy who says, we must burn with love in a world we just can't fix. And all of our work should come from that love and that, that connection with the natural world, not just out of urgency, fear, or despair, but what we love on this planet. And I think that that will be a shift that will change things. That is a wonderful thought to end on. Mr. Conroy used to end uh, phone calls and correspondence with two words, uh, which she probably got from Mother Teresa. She used them as well. Uh, great love oh. is being described there as well. That, that love that is far yeah. greater than, than any one of us. So yeah. Thank that you so much world. for having me, Jonathan. It's just an honor to have been on your, on your podcast. Uh, thank you, Susan. The honor is all mine. Good night. Yeah. <laughs>